We're uh, discussing the subject of biblical separation, and before we do, let's bow and look to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for your precious word, and we thank you for your people. We pray that you would bless our time tonight. We'll thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. We come to one of my favorite parts of, of this study because the biblical basis for any thought of separation, whether personal or ecclesiastical, is the holiness of God. That's, that's the whole basis for separation, the holiness of God. And I like talking about the holiness of God. This becomes the ground for biblical separation because God is clearly stated, uh, but like the Holy One who has called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. The holiness of God means that God is absolutely and perfectly separated from all evil and all sin in everything that he does. He's absolutely and perfectly separated from all sin and everything that he is. God's holiness means that God is always absolutely perfectly pure. This is what God is internally, and this is what God does externally. The holiness of God becomes the whole basis for any separation. Dr. Charles Ryrie said, in respect to God, holiness means not only that he is separate from all that is unclean and evil, but also that he is positively pure and thus distinct from all others. Now, the basic meaning of the word holy is set apart, set apart or to be separated. So when you think of the holiness of God, what you want to think in terms of is that he is completely set apart and completely separated from all other existences in his level of purity, and he is completely set apart from all evil. And it's very clear even from the word holy that biblical separation begins right here at the character of God. Now there are four types of holiness we want to talk about a little bit tonight that uh, are just, uh, in my mind, great things to think about. First of all, God has what we would call majestic holiness. This is a great uh, attribute of God, is majestic holiness. And this reference to the holiness of God means that he is absolutely separate and unapproachable in his holiness. I want you to go to Psalm 113, if you would, for just a moment, please. Psalm 113. Now, when you think about the majestic holiness of God, I want you to think in terms that he is exalted and different above anything, everything, above all things. That's the majestic holiness of God. He's different above and beyond anything else. And when you come to the 113th Psalm and you look at verses 4 to 6, the Lord is high above all nations. His glory is above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God? Who is enthroned on high? Who humbles himself to behold the things that are in heaven and in the earth? Think about that. He lowers himself just to uh, behold things in heaven and on the earth. That's how majestically holy he is. Verse 7, he raises the poor from the dust and lifts up the needy from the ash heap. This is the majestic holiness of God. He is so majestically holy, according to the word of God, that no one can even approach him in and of themselves. And there are lots of glimpses we get of that in the Bible where people literally just could not approach God because he was so majestically holy. Now that uh, holiness or that majestic holiness is brought out in several passages of scripture. Exodus 15, 11, who is like thee among the gods, O Lord, who is like thee majestic in holiness, awesome in praises, working wonders. First Samuel 2, 2, there is no one holy like the Lord. 
Indeed, there is no one besides thee, nor is there any rock like our God. Job 14 to 15. What is man that he should be pure? Or he who is born of a woman that he should be righteous? Behold, he puts no trust in his holy ones, and the heavens are not pure in his sight. Isaiah 57, 15. For thus says the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy, I dwell on a high and holy place. These are all pictures that God gives us of himself that says he is majestically holy. He is a holy, holy God. Psalm 99, 9. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy hill, for holy is the Lord our God. Psalm 111, 9. He has sent redemption to his people. He's ordained his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. And Revelation 15, 4. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify thy name, for thou alone art holy. God's majestic holiness means that God is separated from everything. And that forms the basis for biblical separation. It's the holiness of God, which really becomes the impetus for why we want to separate ourselves from anything. Because God is such a majestically holy God. Now, there's no way we're ever going to reach his level of holiness. We're not going to get close. That's the majestic holiness of God point, that he's just way above and beyond anything else. However, it is that holiness that should stimulate within all of us a desire to separate ourselves from things that certainly would not be responsible in the life of a believer. Now that brings us to the second holiness type, and that is God has a moral holiness. Now what this means is that God is completely separated and set apart from all moral sin and evil. Now here's the thing you have to think about when you think about God. God is omnipresent, which means he's everywhere present, which means he's everywhere sin is. But the thing about him, even though he's everywhere present and he sees all the sin in the world, is the fact that he's holy means he has no personal connection to it. No personal connection whatsoever to the sin that is actually taking place. He's there to certainly witness it. He certainly sees it, but he is not personally connected to it because he has a moral purity. The moral holiness of God emphasizes his purity rather than his majesty. The majestic holiness of God emphasizes his majesty. Now, there are several texts in the scripture that talk about this fact that God is a, a uh, moral holy God. Uh, for example, in Job 34.10, Therefore listen to me, you men of understanding, far be from God to do wickedness, and from the Almighty to do wrong. God cannot do anything wicked. God cannot do anything wrong. Why? Because he has a moral holiness, that's why. Then there's Habakkuk 1.12-13, Art thou not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? Thine eyes are too pure to approve evil, and thou and thou canst not look on wickedness with favor. God cannot look on any wickedness with any favor. 1 John 1.5, and this is the message we have heard from him and announced to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. Now those verses tell us something about the character of God. They tell us something about the moral holiness of God. God is completely separated from evil. He's totally pure. No darkness exists, for he's totally separated from it. And again, we see it, it is the holiness of God, the moral holiness of God, the majestic holiness of God, that would become the basis for any doctrine of biblical separation. Why would we want to separate ourselves from things evil, from things impure, from things God says is wicked? Why? 
because he's separated from those things. He can't do those things. Now, the problem with us is we can, but we want to move as far away from those things as we possibly can. Now, that brings us to the third type of holiness of God, and I would call it God's judicial holiness, his judicial holiness. He has majestic holiness, he has moral holiness, and he has a judicial holiness. This is the part of God's holiness that demands penalty and payment for sin. This is the part of the holiness of God that provides a legal and judicial means of salvation for the sinner. God is so separated in his holiness that he not only cannot tolerate sin, he must judge sin. And God makes it very clear that he will judge sin. It's his holiness that demands that. It's his judicial holiness that demands that. And there are all kinds of terms that refer to this judicial side of the holiness of God. One of them is righteousness. Let me show you a text of scripture from the book of Daniel. Go back to Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9. Notice verse 7. Daniel 9 verse 7. Righteousness belongs to thee, O Lord, but to us open shame as it is this day to the men of Judah. Righteousness belongs to you, Lord. They were under the judgment of God. Why? Because of his righteousness, his righteousness, his judicial nature of righteousness. Then that term redemption, somebody must pay a price uh, in order for sins to be able to be forgiven. That's judicial in nature. Propitiation. There has to be a place where God's wrath can be appeased. Why must he pour out his wrath against sin? Because of his holiness. Because he has a judicial holiness side to him. Justification. Where he declares a sinner to be righteous. Why would he have to do that? Why would he have to say, you need to believe on the Lord so I can give you this judicial edict of righteousness that will enable you to go to heaven? Why does he have to actually go through the legality of that? Because there is a judicial nature to the holiness of God. All of those terms connect you to the judicial side of the holiness of God. It's the judicial side of the holiness of God that is the reason for judgments. Why would God save people who believe on the Lord and condemn people who don't? Because there's a judicial side to the holiness of God. Why would God reward believers who are faithful, but not reward believers who aren't? Because of the judicial side of the holiness of God. So this becomes very critical to our understanding of who God is. Now the fourth type of holiness, the one that really gets in, into our world, is what I would call practical holiness. Practical holiness. Now, if God is holy, then obviously... His holiness means he's separated from evil, then we would have to think in terms of a critical key to me being holy is that I'm going to have to do my best to separate myself from evil. Because that's the character of God, and that's what he reveals in his word. And when we look into the word of God, there are several passages that would imply, state, flat out state, that's what he wants us to do. Go over to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Verse 1, 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 1. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. There's a practical side to this. Uh, if we want to become holy in a reverence of God, we've got to cleanse ourselves. We've got to get away from that which is sinful. Go to 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2. And notice verse 19, 2 Timothy 2, 19. Nevertheless, 
The firm foundation of God stands having this seal. The Lord knows those who are his and let everyone who names the name of the Lord abstain from wickedness. Now that's about as clear as it gets. God says, I am a holy God. You abstain from wickedness if you know me because that's not the way I want you to live. Now I want to uh, tell you where I think we're at in the church age a little bit and, and give us a little admonition on this point. I believe we're nearing the end of the church age. That's no new news to you because I've been saying that for a while now. But by virtue of the fact that I do believe we're near the end of the church age, that means Satan's time is limited. Because once the church age ends, he has seven years. After seven years, he's going into an abyss for a thousand years. Then he's going to be released for a short time and then go to the eternal lake of fire. So if we are nearing the end of the church age, what that means is we are now getting to the very near end of satanic things that are going to go down in this world. It is my opinion, not just mine, but others as well, that as that happens, Satan is going to get real active in a variety of arenas. He's going to start doing things and he's going to start doing bizarre things and start troubling things and start hitting as hard as he can in a variety of areas because he knows his time is very, very limited. The reason I bring this out to you from an eschatological standpoint is because I think this is a time where you want to guard your holiness. I think this is a time you want to guard your doctrine. This is a time you want to be in the church. You want to be in the word of God. You want to be around the people of God. You don't want to let down now in your commitment to the things of God. Because I want to tell you, we're about to go into fierce warfare. And if you let your guard down, you can get burned. And I think as we near the end of the church, you're going to see more and more intense uh, warfare that's going to be stirred up because Satan knows my time's running out and I'm going to lose. This matter of practical holiness because something we need to think very seriously about in our own individual lives. Now this part of the holiness of God is the part that to a certain extent may be imparted to people like us who know the Lord. We can actually reflect a portion of his holiness. Now when it comes to the judicial side of things, what connects us to the holiness of God is the positional work of the Holy Spirit. This is what the baptism of the Holy Spirit really is. How do I take care of that judicial side of the holiness of God? He has to judge my sin. I've got to get somehow connected to justification. I've got to somehow get, get connected to propitiation. I have to get connected to redemption. I've got to get connected to all those things judicially. How is that going to happen? Uh, for me. That's where the Spirit of God baptizes you into Christ. What that means is, at the moment you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, that Spirit of God says, I'm taking you to the court. I'm taking you back to the cross, into the, uh, on that cross, into the grave, and up out again in the mind of God. So all those judicial I issues are settled. That's how you uh, can connect to a God who's majestically holy and a God who is, uh, has a judicial holiness. And it's the Spirit of God that links you to all of that in what is called spirit baptism. That's what meets the legal mandates of God in the case that he has against every one of us. But the practical side of our holiness is the side in which God is permitting his people to be holy. And he asks us to become holy with a full expectation that that's the direction we're going to move. Now, when you come to a text like 1 Peter 1, and let's go to 1 Peter chapter 1. And we, we pointed this out in our exposition of Peter. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 15, But like the Holy One who's called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. 
As I pointed out to you, the command to be holy is a passive tense verb, which means we are commanded to allow the Holy Spirit to produce holiness in us. We can't do it. And as we've seen in our study of spiritual victory, I think that is a critical key to the whole thing. You are down every day acknowledging to God, you can't do it. And you're down there saying, Lord, I want to finish this day having been a spiritual winner by thy estimation. And I know myself, I'm not going to do it. So what I'm asking you to do is allow that spirit of yours to control me all through this day. And direct me and lead me, control my mind, control the way I think, control the way I, I talk. I, I, I'm asking you to do that. And if you do that every single day, I'm not saying you're going to reach sinless perfection, but I want to tell you that will have a profound effect upon your life. Now, I can tell you right now, uh, and this is something that I personally do, I don't believe it's possible for me, in and of myself, to finish an award-winning believer. I don't think I can. I don't think I will. What I'm asking God to do is not let me help but finish that way. In other words, I'm asking God's spirit. I'm saying, God, I need your help so that when I get before you, I can hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Because if it's left up to me or myself, I'm not going to finish this way. I know me. I know what I'm made of. But if you take charge of my life, and if your spirit is dominating my character, then I can hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. I think a critical key to the survival, to becoming holy, is daily, daily having that type of connection to the Lord. You need your own time daily with God, asking God to help you become holy. I need him to ask, I ask, have to ask him to help me become holy because this is not something you achieve on your own. But the idea of separation is an idea that is rooted in the holiness of God. And I like the words of Dr. Ernest Pickering on this. God demands upon his people are based upon his own standards. Truth and holiness are inseparable companions. If God is separate from evil, he expects his people to be so. God's holiness demands not only holy individuals, but also holy congregations. Certainly, we cannot achieve the purity that God alone possesses, nor can we achieve a perfect purity on a relative human scale. Nevertheless, our goal and objective is purity. Now, the truth is, we've all fallen short of all types of the holiness of God, but... Having said that, we still are after being holy. And there's nothing greater than when we get before the Lord, if he says, boy, you, you lived in a holy way. I'm pleased with the way uh, you lived your life. And that's, of course, what we're shooting for. Now, that brings us to the seventh question. And that is, what, is, what are the various types of separation? Various types of separation. This is somewhat of a difficult question to answer, but we can gain some pretty good knowledge by at least trying to answer the question. There are, as I can tell, uh, near as I can tell, two types of separation uh, in the scriptures. The first type I'd call personal separation. Personal separation. Now, personal separation could be understand to mean that a person personally separates himself or herself from things in order that he or she may develop in the Christian life so one can be classified as holy. That's what personal separation is. You make decisions as a man or woman of God. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stay away from that. I'm going to move away from this because I want to be classified by God as holy and I want to develop in my Christian life. So I'm making a personal choice of personal separation. I think there is a, a sense in which we have to have the spirit of God's help to do it. 
uh, as I've already communicated, but I also believe we have responsibilities to at least say, this is the direction I want to move. I want to move this direction, God, and I need your help because I want to be holy. Now, when you analyze personal separation, you can break it down under two categories. The first type of category, we would say separation that is primary. Separation that is primary. And what I mean by that is when, when you decide to separate yourself from something that is scripturally sinful, when you make a decision to separate yourself from something scripturally wrong and evil, you could classify that as a primary separation. When you say, I am not, that is evil in the Bible, I am not going near that, that's primary separation right there. Now, every believer is responsible for his or her own decisions on some of these things, and every believer is responsible to separate himself from certain things and certain people in several ways. For example, a believer is responsible not to be mismated or mismatched with unbelievers. Now let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. These are all biblical matters. These are not matters that are up for opinion. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. And notice verse 14. Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness? Now, obviously, there is commission given to God's people that I'm not to be just all chummy with people who are unbelieving people. I have no fellowship with them. I, I, they're not in my, I'm not running with that crowd because I don't have any connection to that crowd. That's the attitude God wants us to have. Every believer has the responsibility in your sphere of life and people to make that determination. Secondly, a believer is to be separated from religious services which are idolatrous. Religious services which are idolatrous. Now, as long as we're open to 2 Corinthians 6, look at verse 15. Or what harmony has Christ with Belial... Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you. Now that is a strong challenge that is really challenging us. You don't go to religious services that are idolatrous religious services. If they're not dedicated to the true God of the Bible, and they're not dedicated to the scriptural truth, and it's a religious setting, you have no business being there. You shouldn't be there. That, you should make a decision. I'm not, I'm not stepping foot in that place. I'm not going to uh, in any way uh, go into that setting. That's a dangerous thing to do. We've been commanded by God, you stay away from that. Now, as you're doing that, as you're saying, I'm making choices not to go there, not to hang out with this group. That's holiness. You're actually in the process of a holiness that is what God wants. Now, thirdly, a believer is to separate himself from one who causes dissensions contrary to sound teaching. Now, let's go to Romans 16. Romans 16. Romans 16, 17. Paul says, Now I urge you, brethren... Keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learn and turn away from them. Now you have that responsibility. If you know someone and they are constantly uh, getting in arguments over things that are contrary to the word of God, 
I can see if they're questioning or they want to know answers or they're in a discussion because they say, well, what's your view on this? And you're saying, okay, here's what the scriptures say. But if you discover that this person is just constantly in arguments about this, you have no business running with that person. You have no business being around them. You want to cut off a relationship with that individual. Now, this gets a little more complicated. If it comes into the church, that becomes a matter of the leadership and they have to take a look at it and they have to address it. And, uh, and sometimes that can be a, a pretty uh, difficult thing to do, but it has to be done on occasion. But in this context, every individual has a responsibility to not be running with people in a religious sense who are saying things contrary to sound doctrine. You don't want to be hanging out with those kinds of people because they're not going to enhance your spiritual life. I'll tell you that right now. They're going to pull you down. Fourthly, a believer is to separate himself from a professing brother or sister who persists in sin. A believer is to separate himself or herself from a professing brother or sister who persists in sin. Now look at 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 13. Actually, I want to start at verse uh, 11 of 1 Corinthians 5. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he should be an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church, but those who are outside God judges? Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. Now, I take that very literally. I think God wants us to make judgment calls if a person says, oh, I'm a brother, I'm a sister in the Lord, yes, I'm a believer in the Lord, and they're persisting in sin, we have no business fellowshipping uh, with those uh, individuals. Our responsibility is cut off fellowship from those individuals and not even eat with them. And, uh, you know, that gets pretty uh, interesting because some people who get out there in, in persistent sin, some will take the view, oh, I just think I'll just take them to lunch. I'll, we'll go out and I'll let them know we all love them. Well, I don't see that in the scriptures at all. It seems to me the mandate of God is if they're persisting in sin, I'm not going to lunch with you because you are pursuing a lifestyle that is contrary to what God's word says. And I'll have nothing to do with you until you get back on track. When you get back on track, then we can have good fellowship again uh, in the things of God. And the final area that is brought out is that a believer is to separate himself from sinful things and anything that may lead him into sin. Uh, let's go to 1 Corinthians 6.18. We read, flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. And 1 Peter 2, flee lusts. Uh, because they'll, they'll, they'll pull you in. So we have the responsibility individually to make decisions to separate ourselves from these kinds of things. Now, again, if our eschatology is accurate and we're in the final hours of the church age, these satanic attacks are going to come more and more rapid against you. And it is imperative that we take the scriptures and we make decisions based on the scriptures base our theology and our faith on what the written word of God says. So keep your guard up. Don't let it down in these days. You let your guard down in these end times and, uh, and it can end up in a disaster. So what we want to do is keep ourselves focused on the word of God and the will of God uh, until we have the privilege of seeing the Lord. Any questions or comments uh, tonight about um, what we've covered here?